On March 9th, the world witnessed a sum-of-all-fear scenario in global markets. The coronavirus outbreak has disrupted supply chains and is cooling off demands for services and products. And the world's two largest oil exporters began a price war that sent shockwaves around the globe. The Brazilian stock market triggered a circuit breaker, dropping over 12%. The Brazilian currency continued losing value against the US dollar, and shares of Brazil's largest company, Petrobras, crashed 30%, the biggest slide ever for a single day. Analysts are growing pessimistic about Brazil, and GDP growth forecasts for 2020 have been slashed from 2.3% to just 1.99% over the past month. There's no evidence that economic conditions have already hit rock bottom, which begs the question. Is Brazil equipped to face the upcoming turmoil? My name is Gustavo Ribeiro. I'm the editor-in-chief of the Brazilian Report. This is Explaining Brazil. Brazilians have reason to worry. The world may be enduring its worst economic climate since the 2008 global financial crisis, with the economic slowdown expected to lower government's revenues. And the Brazilian president seems incapable of dealing with the crisis. While markets were in meltdown mode, Jair Bolsonaro was in Miami meeting with pop artist Romero Brito, helping him paint a portrait of First Lady Michelle Bolsonaro. He later said that the destructive power of the coronavirus is being, quote, overestimated and linked the virus to a possible economic conspiracy, without going into any detail whatsoever. Está sendo superdimensionado o poder destruidor desse, desse vírus, certo? Então, talvez esteja sendo potencializado até por questões econômicas. Meanwhile, Economy Minister Paulo Guedes is trying to pass off an image of business as usual and said the government is, quote, absolutely calm, unquote, and that his team can handle whatever is thrown at them. This week, we are delighted to welcome back economist Monica Deboli, a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics in Washington, D.C. Professor, you're no stranger to our show. Thanks for coming back. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Before we get into how the government is dealing with the crisis, can you briefly explain to our audience what shape the Brazilian economy is in going into 2020? So the Brazilian economy has actually been on shaky ground for a while. Um, there was a very big recession in 2015 and 2016. GDP fell over those two years by over 7.5%. It's the largest rec recorded his uh, recession in Brazilian history. Labor markets are also pretty weak. Unemployment is currently just over 11%. Um, the numbers high, and the even though the it's been it's been falling, the unemployment rate has been falling. 
um, the conditions, the underlying conditions of the labor market are, are very weak. So if we look at the reasons for why the, the unemployment rate has been falling, it's mostly to do with an increase in labor market informality. So people who don't have formal jobs um, and also, you know, the just people who end up when they do come into the formal sector, they go into activities that don't have a lot of economic security. So whether, you know, it's sort of the, di the digital economy or other types of jobs that don't really have a lot of benefits attached to them, that's the kind of job creation that we're seeing in Brazil. So labor markets are very weak, which is making demand very weak. And thus, you know, when we look at these growth numbers and we just break it break them down from the demand side consumption is really weak and investment is is very very weak so that's the state that the economy is in um, as of right now and the state that it has been in for the past three years we have seen economic forecasts being slashed week after week over the past month how exposed is brazil to the global slowdown and specifically to China's deceleration? Um, Brazil is very dependent on China. It's one of its, its largest trading partners. It also depends a lot on China for investment, particularly FDI. Um, and, you know, these things have slowed down, obviously, um, over the past two and a half months, which have also impacted the country. So, you know, just based on two, on those two issues alone, commodity prices on the one hand and China on the other, um, there is a there is reason to slash forecasts for 2020, and then on top of all that, there's the uncertainty, you know, the global uncertainty with how this epidemic is going to progress and how it's going to affect countries worldwide. Um, this uncertainty has a lot of has a lot of sort of ramifications. One of which is you know a sort of paralysis in in investment activities and you know just basically investors wanting to get out of assets that they perceive to be riskier. And then, of course, because Brazil has been in a vulnerable position for so long, it is one of the countries that has suffered the most from the sort of rise in risk aversion that we've seen in markets. Thus, the currency has been one of the worst performing, if not the worst performing amongst emerging markets this year. And the, the stock market recently has also taken a tumble. Um, and, you know, the situation is unlikely to to clear up anytime soon, given that we have no real idea of how this epidemic is going to unfold. Professor, Italy, Germany, South Korea, Chile, the U.S., Japan and China have all announced stimulus packages to curb the effects of a global slowdown. But in Brazil, uh, Economy Minister Paulo Guedes seems unfazed by what is happening. House Speaker Rodrigo Maia sort of extended an olive branch to the president, calling for a joint effort to pass structural reforms, like the overhaul of public service and a tax reform. How do you see these reactions from Brazilian authorities? And how should Brazil respond to the looming crisis? People in Brazil, have the authorities haven't quite understood that this is a crisis, and it's not a small one. It's a big crisis, and it's a crisis without precedent. Because when we look to the past to sort of get a um, you know some kind of sense of where we are, the past is actually not not very good for comparison or or even to serve as a benchmark. Because 
past crises have always been about, you know, either financial market problems directly. So, you know, banking issues or wider financial market issues like in 2008, um, or they've been specifically about external problems that led to a balance of payments crisis, which, you know, was a large part of the story of many crises that we saw in the late 90s, including the one that afflicted Brazil in January of 1999. So these kinds of financial crises we have as economists, we know how to address them and we know how to, you know, launch macroeconomic policies and other policies to deal with them. But this current crisis, which is really a combination of, you know, a geopolitical problem between Saudi Arabia and Russia, which has affected oil markets, and on the other hand, combined with actually a, a very a, a much larger problem, which is the the epidemic of, of COVID-19, this is something that we've never seen. You know, it is it is unprecedented in, in, in so many ways. And when I see the reactions from the Brazilian authorities in sort of a, in a kind of, you know, oh, it's just let, let's just continue with things as normal as they were before. This is this is this is troubling to me because they're not really facing or, or seeing how bad and how badly the situation could unfold and how badly it could affect Brazil. Um, especially Brazil being in the kind of vulnerable situation that, you know, we discussed earlier. So for me, this would have been the time for the authorities in Brazil to be thinking, you know, what is it that we can do, given that there's limited fiscal space in Brazil, but there is some fiscal space. What is it that, you know, can actually be done to at least protect the economy a bit from the fallout, the inevitable fallout that's going to happen from this crisis that's brewing everywhere in the world. And the discussion is not there. You know, the discussion is a sort of business as usual, as if, you know, these things are not going to touch Brazil at all. And hence, we keep, the, you know, they can continue thinking about all of these very ambitious reforms that they were planning to go ahead with and so on and so forth without considering the need for countercyclical um, measures to contain, you know, at least in part, the fallout from the crisis. And without those measures, really, the scenario for Brazil is very grim because given the weakness of the economy, it's not unreasonable to think that, you know, there is a great risk and it's a rising risk of having a recession in, in 2020. Something that you have proposed is altering the rules of the federal spending cap which was brought into law in 2016 and restricted any increase in public spending to inflation from the previous year. Could you explain to us how this plan would work? So the spending cap that Brazil currently has was enacted in 2016, and it was sort of an emergency measure in a sense because Brazil at that point, and things have changed quite dramatically since then, but Brazil at that point was really facing, you know, the possibility of having a serious fiscal crisis. Um, the deficits were out of control. The debt to GDP ratio was high and seemed to be, you know, if you did any sort of scenario analysis, you would come away with, you know, oh, my God, this debt to GDP ratio is going to be increasing over time um, without, you know, any end in sight. And therefore, you know, to sort of get back on track, um, one of the things that was done was to enact to enact this this spending cap. 
Um, expenditure ceilings are not new. They've been used in many countries, include, including in many other Latin American countries, and they can, they can work pretty well. Um, and I'm not saying at all that this was a bad idea. The, the, my critique at the time, which I continue to sustain, is that the way by which Brazil designed its spending cap made it overly rigid because the, the, the idea was that expenditures needed to be contained at any cost. And therefore, the spending cap was designed in a way that, and that was my main critique, would completely impede um, the country from having counter-cyclical measures when, if, if that were ever required. And that's exactly what the situation that we're facing now. And that brings me to another point, which is now we have low interest rates because nominal interest rates were brought down in a situation where inflation is contained. And that, when you, um, you know, look at the debt-to-GDP ratio, has led to a completely different scenario for the debt-to-GDP ratio. So it's now, you know, a lot more stable and, um, you know, it's, it's, just, it's just changed completely. On top of that, the government did do last year the, the pension reform, which was much needed to open up some fiscal space in the in the in the medium term, and also to alleviate you know the pressures on the debt to GDP ratio. So when you combine all of these things, there is some fiscal room for Brazil to actually do some kind of countercyclical policy, and it doesn't make any sense to have a spending cap in place that completely um, you know blocks that from happening. You know, uh, two things should happen, or one of two things should happen. Either the, sp the spending cap should be modified so that counter-cyclical measures can be used, or you scrap the, the, the spending ceiling and you substitute it for something else. But, you know, these are exactly the kinds of discussions that the country should be having, and it's not. Professor De Bolli, uh, your proposal of making the federal spending cap more flexible has been met with criticism by some economists who defend a more orthodox approach to macroeconomics. They say these measures could compromise uh, trust that the markets have in the Brazilian economy and scrap the gains that austerity measures had over the past three plus years. How would you respond? I think it's an absolutely silly argument because it fails to recognize that the scenario that Brazil faces right now is completely different from the one it faced four years ago. So we're not in 2016 anymore and people seem to be stuck in 2016. Um, the kind of fiscalist approach that people are taking when they analyze these 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 issues for Brazil is stuck in time, um, and you know we've if and, and and it's kind of curious to me because there's almost a sense of lack of even though you know these people defend um, fiscal austerity as the only game in town. There's almost like a lack of confidence in the in the, in the argument, implicit in the argument, in the austerity that has already been done. You know, I mean, if if the austerity has been successful, as so many argue, then we should be able now to have the condition to do precisely what needs to be done when countercyclical measures are needed. And yet, as I said, people seem to be stuck in 2016. So. It, it just doesn't make any sense to me. I don't see any sense to this argument. I don't see any logic to this argument. And I simply don't understand how being in a situation where you do nothing and the economy faces a much higher risk of recession, how that is any better 
from doing a little bit of a counter-cyclical push and therefore having a better scenario in the short term, which is not really going to compromise your fiscal stance, given that the scenario is totally different. So it's, it's just a discussion that makes no sense to me. Before we let you go, uh, oil prices have plummeted from 66 to $37 per barrel in 2020. What are the impacts on Petrobras and to oil-producing states that depend on this revenue for the annual budgets? Yeah, so that's a very complicated situation. Um, we don't know yet exactly what's going to happen to oil prices. I mean, certainly they're going to remain low. I don't know how low, but they will remain low um, just from, from the simple math that, you know, the economy, the global economy is going to decelerate. So obviously oil prices are going to follow that. Um, but there's the, the other underlying unfolding situation between Saudi Arabia and Russia, which I think is quite unpredictable. So we don't know exactly what happens on that front. But in any event, um, given that oil prices will be lower than what they were and what people were estimating they would be, this is definitely going to be a problem for the Brazilian states that depend on royalties um, from, from oil and that on those revenues, because those are precisely states which are already in financial difficulty. So um, that brings in, you know, a, a host of issues for the subnational finances and ultimately for the federal government, you know, in whichever way they decide to deal with this. So that's that's certainly a concern. And for Petrobras itself, it diminishes, obviously, Petrobras's capacity to invest and um, Petrobras being, you know, as sizable as it is and as important in the economy as it is, it creates a lot of multiplier effects when it invests because uh, the stuff that it, you know, invests in uses a lot of, it has a lot of um, cascading effects on the rest of the economy. There's a lot of sort of downstream implications for other sectors. So if investment by Petrobras slows down, because its revenues are lower due to lower oil prices, that slows down investment even further, and it ends up affecting the economy as a whole. So that's um, that's the second difficulty. So you know, there's an interplay of complexities in the in the oil price situation that affects Brazil um, in many different ways, and none of which are good. After the break how the spread of the novel coronavirus could make a bad political climate even worse. We'll be right back. You may have seen in the news that Jeff Bezos, simply the world's richest man, was hacked. That shows you that nobody and no company is totally immune from cyber criminals. But with FastHelp, you can protect your company's virtual space. FastHelp is a Brasilia-based IT company that offers the best tools against hacking and data breaches. Go to fasthelp.com.br for more information. fasthelp.com.br Ewan Marshall, hello. Hi, Gustavo. Ewan, in many cases, a crisis presents itself as a great opportunity for conciliation among political stakeholders in the name of a common goal. Yeah, so there's that famous economist maxim, which is often attributed to Churchill, 
that says that a good crisis should never be wasted. But you wrote on the Brazilian report this week that we should not expect that in 2020 Brazil. Why is that? Well, though on the one hand we do have Paulo Guedes and Rodrigo Maia, who are the representatives of Brazil's economy team and Congress, we have both of them suggesting that there could be some sort of joint effort to push these reforms through. But while this is going on, we have President Jair Bolsonaro openly campaigning against Congress and explicitly calling his supporters to street protests on March 15th, this Sunday, for demonstrations that demand the shutdown of Congress and the Supreme Court, as we discussed actually in last week's episode. It seems that we're dealing with more than simply a lack of skills to deal with the crisis. The president seemingly cannot stop himself from making things worse. And it is not for a lack of emotional control, but rather this seems that it is his political ammo. Yeah, I mean, since taking office, Bolsonaro has been highly confrontational. And, you know, it's not going to help his administration get things approved. So what exactly are they trying to pass on Congress? More reforms, but which ones? Right. So yeah, unlike last year, where the government focused on one single project as their kind of utmost priority, and that was the pension reform, this year the economy ministry is trying to spread itself out a bit in an effort to get more done. So the two big projects are a tax reform and another is the overhaul of Brazil's public service. Right. And... How are these proposals getting on? Well, put simply, they're not at all. Um, the economy ministry has been talking up these reforms since last year, but we're now in the second week of March, and the government hasn't even presented either proposal to Congress. And actually, they're running out of time to get things approved, right? Because we've got municipal elections this year, so nothing will get done in Congress after July when they go out on their midterm break. Yeah, and it's even worse than that, because in June, you have politicians from the northeast region of Brazil. They usually head back to their constituencies to take part in their kind of traditional São João festivals, which they're kind of hugely important for their local communities. And now they were forced to miss out on these festivals last year because of the pension reform. And there's no way that they're going to back down this year with the elections in October. So you're saying that the government has less than three months to approve these reforms from square one. And let's remember, the pension reform took the entire year of 2019 because uh, deep reforms like these uh, call for constitutional amendments. They require uh, huge majorities in Congress and at least four votes, two in each congressional house. Yeah, so, I mean, when you take all of that into account, It's hardly surprising that analysts continue to cut down their growth forecast for the Brazilian economy this year. Yeah, no, it seems that the government is dragging its heels. But let's move on to Sunday's protests. We have discussed them last week, but what has changed since then? Uh, Are they still set to go ahead? So far, yes, uh, they will be going ahead. Uh, On the weekend just past, Jair Bolsonaro doubled down in his support for the demonstrations But, you know, even some of his allies are starting to get wary about the potential effects of these protests. And not only on the political side, right? Because in most countries where the coronavirus has arrived, leaders are asking people to avoid mass crowds. But in Brazil's infection have increased tenfold over just the past week. And the president is still asking supporters to take to the streets, which is amazing. (laughs) I know. 
But I'm sorry, I, I cut you off. Uh, you were talking about the political implications of the protests. Yeah, so on the one hand, these protests could be huge. And that would anger Congress and make them essentially just down tools for the rest of the year and nothing would be approved. Or they could be underwhelming. They could be quite small in number, which would make Bolsonaro look really vulnerable and would back him into a corner. And, you know, who knows how he would react then. And what about a middle-of-the-road scenario? Like the protests we saw in 2019, not too full, not, at least not enough to back Congress uh, into a corner, but not too empty uh, as if to let uh, Bolsonaro just completely exposed. Yeah, and I think that's probably the most likely outcome, um, but it would mean that this kind of perpetual political crisis would just roll on. And there's also the chance that Bolsonaro is going to pull his support from the protests at the last minute because, you know, you have the spread of the coronavirus, as we mentioned there. It's a potential excuse. Some of his cabinet ministers have reportedly already asked him to pull away from the from the protests. So, you know, we'll continue monitoring this throughout the week and see if they do actually go ahead. Ewan, thank you. Thank you. This podcast was written by me, Gustavo Ribeiro, and Ewan Marshall, who also edits the final script. Sound engineering and production was by yours truly. And if you like this podcast, rate us on any platform you may be listening to explain in Brazil. It is really important for us because it helps other people to find about this show. But the best way to support Explaining Brazil continues to be a subscription to the Brazilian Report, which is the journalistic engine behind this podcast. Every day we have new content about politics, finance, and society. We've also got exclusive newsletter services if you want to be briefed about what is going on in Brazil before starting your day. Subscribe now for our free trial and take a look at our content for seven days. And don't worry, it is really free. You don't have to submit any credit card information whatsoever. Just go to brazilian.report slash subscribe. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Our handle is at Brazilian Report. That's all for now. See you next week. 